If you would like to follow as I read from our text today, reading from 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone that loveth him that begat loveth him also that is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not grievous. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. In addressing the matter of faith, two extremes must be avoided altogether. First, the extreme of those who have a zeal, but not according to knowledge. That is, those who are very short on doctrine, but exceedingly long on experience. Many are drawn into such an unbiblical view of faith, desiring to experience the invisible God by demonstration of His power. Their emphasis is upon seeing and feeling God. However, because of their preoccupation with experience apart from doctrine, they are easily deceived and deluded by their mere experiences. And sadly, they conclude they must have faith because of what they have experienced. Now, to the other extreme, there are those who have a knowledge yet without zeal. They are very short on experience, but exceedingly long on knowledge. Their faith is not experiential, but merely intellectual. This unbiblical view of faith focuses all its attention upon knowing rather than Experiencing anything, practicing anything, living anything, simply knowing the invisible God. And because of their preoccupation with doctrine apart from good works, they too are easily deceived and deluded by their mere knowledge and conclude they must have faith because of what they have learned. You see, dear ones, both of these extremes are equally dangerous and equally contrary to the overcoming faith of which the Apostle John here speaks in 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. For the mere experiential faith offers to God dead works devoid of true knowledge of Christ. Whereas the mere intellectual faith offers to God dead faith, devoid of the true life of Christ. And as we shall see, as we consider the text before us, an overcoming faith is built upon the firm foundation of a true knowledge of Christ, and yet an overcoming faith is visible by means of the life of Christ that's lived in the Christian. Beloved, the overcoming faith of which John speaks is not the miraculous faith that necessarily works supernatural signs and wonders. And yet in another sense, this Overcoming faith is supernatural in that it is supernaturally created in the life of every Christian by the Spirit of God. There's nothing ordinary about an overcoming faith in the life of a Christian. Nor is the overcoming faith of which John speaks only the mature faith that has reached a certain level of sanctification 
For the overcoming faith that is here spoken of is present in all the sons of God, regardless of their degree of sanctification. All Christians have overcoming faith. Certainly, faith in the life of a Christian is growing. However, that faith which is growing in the life of a Christian is from beginning to end, at its least small size to its greatest size, from beginning to end, it is always an overcoming faith. Do not misunderstand when John speaks of an overcoming faith that he's talking about a certain kind or degree of faith that a Christian reaches. God only gives one kind of faith to all his children, and that is an overcoming faith. This overcoming faith may, as we look at the lives of Christians past, present, and as we consider even Christians in the future, this overcoming faith may stumble and fall seven times, but it rises again with renewed zeal for the Lord Jesus Christ. This overcoming faith may suffer in a furnace heated seven times, but it comes forth refined, not consumed. Beloved, be not discouraged nor dismayed because your faith today is tried, yea, even severely tried. For the only kind of faith that God gives to those who embrace and love the Christ revealed in the Holy Scriptures is an overcoming faith. Your faith cannot fail. Let us consider together today in the text the four following questions concerning this overcoming faith. First of all, what is the object of an overcoming faith? Second, what is the cause of an overcoming faith? Third, what is the fruit of an overcoming faith? And finally, what is the victory of an overcoming faith? As we consider the first question, what is the object of an overcoming faith? Consider with me 1 John chapter 5 and these words. Just the first part of verse 1. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And verse 5. Who is he that overcometh the world but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? The object of the overcoming faith is clearly the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. However, any religious group that identifies itself with Christianity in any any sense would affirm that one must believe in Jesus Christ and would even call Him the Son of God. Here is the foundation, dear ones, upon which an overcoming faith is built. The Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, as you go to various groups and you ask them, Who is Jesus Christ? You will see that the object of their faith is not the Christ revealed in the Holy Scriptures. One can sincerely believe in the Jesus of the Jehovah Witnesses and not have an overcoming faith. They declare Christ to be the first creation of God rather than the second person of the Godhead. Or one can earnestly believe in the Jesus of the Mormons and not have an overcoming faith. The Mormons believe that Jesus is one among many gods 
rather than the one true living God. Or one can thoroughly believe in the Jesus of the United Pentecostals, the Apostolic Church of Pentecost, or other oneness groups who declare Jesus to be God, yet not the eternal Son of God, as eternally distinguished from the Father and the Spirit. Or one can completely believe in the Jesus of liberalism and not have an overcoming faith. The liberals declare Jesus to be a mere man, albeit a godly man, rather than the God-man. Or one can believe in the Jesus of Arminianism and not have an overcoming faith who declare that Jesus came to fulfill God's part in salvation. But man must do his own part in believing and obeying God rather than teaching that Christ actually purchased and gives to every Christian the grace, the faith, the works, and the benefits that he enjoys. Or one can fully believe in the Jesus of Gnosticism, which was the heresy that was facing the churches that John wrote to. The Gnostics believed and declared that Jesus was divine in some sense, yet not fully human, rather than teaching that Jesus is the Son of Man as well as the Son of God. Dear ones, is it not clear that mere sincerity of faith never saved anyone from hell? There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Proverbs 14.12 Paul says in Romans 10, verses 1 and 2, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God but not according to knowledge. In fact, it is not faith in and of itself at all that saves us, but rather it is the object of our faith that alone can save us. It is only the Christ of the Bible as He is revealed in the Word of God that can save you and me from our, from our sins. And it is only by embracing Him, dear ones, that one can be delivered from God's just condemnation. But someone may ask, well, what are we to believe concerning the Christ of the Bible? Well, let me summarize for you very briefly what we as Christians believe about the Christ of the Bible this is the Christ who is the object of our faith. And to trust in any other Christ is a vain hope, is a false confidence, and will land us certainly in hell. First, we are to believe that Christ is God and eternally exists as the Son of God. As the second person of the Holy Trinity, He is eternally equal to the Father and Spirit in power and in glory. This is the Christ of the Bible. Secondly, we are to believe that Christ is God's anointed one. That's what Christ means. Christos means anointed one. You see, prophets, priests, and kings in the Old Testament Scriptures were commissioned by God to do a service by means of anointing. Jesus Christ is the anointed mediator of the covenant of grace whereby the Father and the Son covenanted together from all eternity to save God's elect. And Christ came to redeem God's elect as their prophet that He might reveal to them the will of God for their salvation. 
He became to his elect their priest that he might reconcile them to God by his righteousness and his sacrifice for them. And he became to his elect their king that he might rule them and conquer all his and their enemies. This is the Christ of the Bible. Thirdly, we are to believe that the eternal Son of God was fully man. He became flesh and dwelt amongst us. That He is our representative and as our representative, He perfectly kept the law of God, which is actually the righteousness which is imputed to us when we believe. And that He died as our representative to satisfy God's infinite justice which is the forgiveness which we receive from God when we believe. This is the Christ of the Bible. Fourthly, we are to believe that Christ rose again from the dead the third day, that He ascended to heaven, that He is seated at the right hand of God and will come to judge the world at the last day. You see, dear ones, his resurrection guarantees that we are justified and made acceptable to God. For had his sacrifice not been acceptable to God, he would have remained in the grave. But his resurrection guarantees that we are forgiven. That God's wrath has been satisfied. That we belong to him. This is the Christ of the Bible. And finally, we are to believe that this Christ and this Christ alone is sufficient to save all that embrace Him as Savior. None of our works can be brought to God as a reason for our justification. Christ and Christ alone is our merit before God. We bring no merit. We bring only Christ. That is all. And whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is the Christ of the Bible, a sufficient Savior to all who believe and trust Him. Beloved, when faith is placed in this Christ of the Bible, then there can be a confidence and an assurance that will not disappoint you. For such a faith does not rest in the faith of man. It does not rest in the faithfulness of man. Such a faith is in the the sufficiency of Jesus Christ and in the faithfulness of God to keep His promise. The issue then, dear ones, if we would have confidence, the issue is this, not whether I have a lot of faith, not whether I have a little faith, The issue is, everything hinges upon Christ's sufficiency and God's faithfulness. You see, that is what brings assurance. When He is our object of faith. Let me ask you, is this Christ of the Bible Sufficient to save? Is he sufficient to save the whole world if the whole world were to believe in him? Is he sufficient to be able to redeem? Did he actually redeem those for whom he died? Did he actually purchase them? Can God be trusted to keep his promises? In spite of all your sin, dear ones, and all your deficiency, today, embrace this Christ 
in all his glorious sufficiency now by faith. An all-sufficient Savior is offered to you in the Gospel. His work cannot be improved upon. Embrace Him. Is He the object of your faith today? Is He alone in whom you are trusting as your eternal hope of salvation? You see, dear ones, an overcoming faith in Christ must be more than a mere verbal profession. Children, it is not enough to simply say that you believe in Christ. Adults, it is not enough to simply appear before the elders and say, I believe this. If you would escape the condemnation of God, the object of your faith must be the Lord Jesus Christ and not a mere verbal profession. You must embrace Him with all of your heart today. It is taking God at His word and embracing His Son alone. From that firm foundation proceeds a firm and settled assurance of salvation, dear ones. And by way of application, before we move on to the next question, If we can believe that Jesus Christ is sufficient to save us from that which is most painful, that being hell, that He is able to give to us eternal life, that He is able to provide for us all that we need in order to live a Christian life, is He not sufficient as well? to cause all things in our life to work together for His good, for His glory and our good? Is He not able to take every affliction, every pain, every trial that we pass through and cause it to bring glory to Him and to shape and to form our character to be conformed to His image? You see, dear ones, so often we allow our faith to be so one-sided, to trust in Christ for our salvation. But when it comes to daily living the Christian life and the worries, the heartaches, the fears that we face every day, we seem to forget we still have a sufficient Savior. He is our God. We are to look to Him. If He's taken care of the greatest then certainly he can take care of the least. Turn to the same sufficient Savior each and every day for all of your needs. The second question that we find presented by John is this. What is the cause of an overcoming faith? What do we owe this overcoming faith to? Again, let me read for you the first part of 1 John 5.1. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. In other words, whoever has this Christ of the Bible as the object of his faith is born of God. Now, this isn't teaching that Being born of God is the result of faith. Quite to the contrary, the particular tense that's used here in the Greek language conveys the idea that faith is the result of one who has already been born of God. In other words, whoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Faith is the result of regeneration. Regeneration, being born of God, precedes faith. Here is the cause of this overcoming faith. It is the overcoming God. It is the Spirit of God, the Almighty God, that creates and gives this overcoming faith. As we find in Ephesians chapter 2, 
verses 4 through 5. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. When we were dead in our sins, when we had no life to God, when we were buried and in our grave spiritually, God spoke and sent his spirit to give us life. And when he gave us life, we believed. But since the cause of the Christian's overcoming faith, dear ones, is not weak, frail, sinful man, since man did not create this overcoming faith, and since this overcoming faith is not a gift man bestows upon himself, but rather a faith caused by, created by, and freely given by the Almighty Spirit of God, it is not a faith that can be overcome or destroyed. It cannot be destroyed. It cannot perish. For God himself will preserve the faith that he has created in his children. In John chapter 6, verses 37 through 39, in the Lord's sermon there, he says this, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me. When the Lord says, all that the Father giveth me, that is all of the elect which God has chosen to save, he has given to me to redeem, all of these shall come to me. And that's just another way of saying they will all believe in me. All that the Father hath given to me shall come to me, or believe in me. And him that cometh to me, or believes in me, I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again, at the last day, the Lord promises that he will not lose any to whom he has given an overcoming faith. You see, dear ones, a child of God may truly pray, Help thou my unbelief when his faith falters. A child of God may have faith the size of a mustard seed, so small, but because that faith is created by God's Almighty Spirit, and because that faith is in the Son of God, that faith can move mountains. It is an overcoming faith. Whatever obstacles that the enemy may throw before the path of the believer, that faith can overcome them all and will overcome all enemies. A faith is overcoming not because of the size of it. So often we tend to think that we are able to overcome because of the size of our faith. It is not the size of our faith, but because it is the overcoming Christ who is the object of our faith and the overcoming Spirit who is the creator of that faith. Those are the reasons why it will overcome. It will not perish. It may fall. It may falter. It may take its various hits from the enemy. It may seem to flounder and struggle at times, but it will not be overcome. It cannot be overcome. The third question. What is the fruit of an overcoming faith? 
we consider 1 John 5, the second part of verse 1 through verse 3. And everyone that loveth him that begat, loveth him also that is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not grievous. Think with me for a moment what the Gnostic false teachers were promoting about Christ. They were promoting a Christ of their own imagination. Though they said they believed in Christ, he was a figment of their imagination. He was not the Christ of the Bible. And because they were promoting a a Christ of their own imagination, they conjured up mystical experiences that supposedly confirmed this knowledge that they had about this imaginary Christ. You see, they used their mystical experiences to, in effect, say, this must be true because I've had this experience. This must be how Christ is because I've had this experience. But John demonstrates that we know Christ not by our mere reason, We know Christ by a mind that is submitted to God's revelation. That's how we know Christ is by a mind that is submitted to God's word. And we experience the life of Christ, dear ones, not by disengaging our mind and engaging our emotions, but by applying our knowledge of Christ to our lives in practicing love for and obedience to Him. This is the way we judge that one has a true knowledge of Christ. He not only professes the truth, but He also lives the truth. A note by way of application concerning this before we move on. Dear ones, and I speak to you in the congregation, God has indeed been very gracious to us to enlighten our minds in the knowledge of Christ, to give us by His grace a knowledge of the truth. But dear ones, there is a danger that comes with such knowledge. It's called pride and arrogance and self-sufficiency, which leads to much study, but little or no time spent pouring out our hearts to God, communing with God in humility, praying for fervency and zeal in our lives, looking for honesty and integrity in all of our actions and words, displaying mercy to those who are in need, and love and faithfulness to our God. I dare say, God will give us over, dear ones, listen carefully. God will give us over to a blind deception if we forget Him. If we ignore Him, if we neglect His means of grace and do not commune and enjoy Him, God will give us over to vain thoughts and imaginations. He will blind us to the truth. And our so-called knowledge will then become our greatest enemy if we do not live the life of Christ at home. Husbands and wives, parents and children. If we do not live this life of Christ in our workplace by being men and women whether men at work or women at home, of integrity and honesty. 
And by living the life of Christ in the church, by obeying all of his ordinances, not simply outwardly, but with our whole heart. And it will surely come. You can count on it. If you've not experienced it, it will come. This pride, this arrogance, this self-sufficiency will come as a temptation to you and to me as surely as I stand before you today. Dear ones, God's Word teaches, Pride goeth before destruction, and in haughty spirit before a fall. The way to avoid such temptations to pride is by the two evidences that follow of an overcoming faith. Loving service and faithful obedience. First of all, our loving service to God and to our brethren. This is the first outward evidence given by John of an overcoming faith. An overcoming faith is not only grounded in the doctrines of the Scripture, but is also evidenced by a genuine love for God and for the brethren. In fact, Paul says in Galatians 5.6, For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. See, this is what John is saying. How do we see an overcoming faith in the life of a Christian? By love. Paul says, but faith which worketh by love. Beloved, love is essentially manifested in giving oneself. Not simply things, but giving oneself to the one who is loved. In Galatians 2.20, the Apostle Paul makes this very clear as to what he understands love to be. When he says, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. How did the Lord Jesus Christ demonstrate his love? He gave himself for us. How do we demonstrate our love one to another? We give ourselves to the other. We don't simply try to placate them or satisfy them temporarily until they get off of our case and leave us alone by giving to them things we give to the one who has loved our lives, ourselves. Love is further evidenced by service. Serving others. Paul again in Galatians 5.13 says, For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Now, what is this liberty into which we've been called, brethren? He says, Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, to satisfy yourself, to please yourself, but by love serve one another. That's how you manifest your liberty in Christ, by serving God and serving one another. In our text, very briefly, <clears throat> how do we know we love God the Father? Well, according to chapter 5, the first verse, second part of that verse, we know we love God the Father when we love His children begotten of Him. It says, And everyone that loveth Him that begat who begat? The Father begat. Everyone that loveth him that begat, loveth him also that is begotten of him. That may refer to Christ. Seems most commentators 
believe that that refers, however, to what is spoken of in the next verse, the children of God who have been begotten of God. And so how do we know that we love God? Well, we know we love God because we're loving our brother. We're loving his children. That's how we know that we love God. For dear ones, you cannot love God without loving all those who have his divine nature imprinted upon their nature. Those who are the sons of God. You cannot love the Father without loving the children of the Father because they bear the image of God. And then we see in in verse 2, we ask this question, how do we know we love the children who are begotten of God? That's just the reverse of the question I just asked, which John poses. How do we know we love the children begotten of God? Well, John says, we know we love the children begotten of God because we love God. We love the Father. Listen to what he says in verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. We'll look at that, keep his commandments in just a moment. But do you see here the connection? Again, you cannot love those who have God's image without loving God who gave the image in the first place. You cannot love those who bear the image without loving him who originally bears the image. And so when we commune with God, when we delight in God each and every day in prayer, Have you ever thought about this? When you delight and commune with God, you're also showing your love for the brethren? How so? Well, let me tell you, there is nothing we can do that will promote our love for the brethren more than by our communing with their father. When we commune with the Father, when we commune with the elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, when we enjoy fellowship, we will appreciate all of his children and love his children as we ought. However, when we profane and make common, that's what profane means. When you talk about a profane person, you're not talking about the the guy who appears to have the dirtiest mouth, the most vile language. That's not what it's speaking of when it talks about a profane person. Profanity is not simply uttering the worst possible thing that one can imagine about God. That is profanity, but that is not all that profanity is. Anything by which we make God or the holy things of God common and ordinary is profaning God. When we make his holy day like any other day, we profane God. When we punctuate our sentences with the use of of God's name, not just when we're angry, but even if we just carelessly use God's name, we make the name of God, we make God profane and common and ordinary. When we use in our language that place of suffering and torment called hell, or when we use in our language that by which God sends people to hell, namely damning people, We profane that which is God's prerogative alone and make even those things common and ordinary. It's not because the words damn and hell are wicked or evil in and of themselves that they are profane. It is because they make that which is extremely serious and for which we should shudder very common and ordinary. And when we do so, 
dear people of God, when we profane that which is holy, when we make that which is holy common, again, we not only sin against God, but we sin against our neighbor. For sooner or later, all of our profaneness, in what area, whatever area of our life it may be in, we cannot keep it secret. We cannot keep it hidden. That's a myth that what you do all by yourself will never uh, affect or bother anybody else. That's what the world says about their secret sin. It will never affect anybody But when we profane God, it will affect our family. It will affect our fellow brothers and sisters in the Church of Jesus Christ. And so to the degree that we love God and honor that which is holy, to that degree we will love and consider honorable the children of God. The second fruit of an overcoming faith is stated for us the end of verse Two, and then in verse 3. And it speaks of keeping his commandments at the end of verse 2. And it says, For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. The second fruit, therefore, is obedience to God's commands. The second way in which we evidence that there is in our lives an overcoming faith is a love for a holy life. Dear ones, do you love holiness? Do you desire to be holy like the Lord? If we do not love a holy life, and do not earnestly desire to be holy, how can we love God who is holy? Faithful obedience to God's commands is the outworking of love in a Christian's life. Just as from faith comes love, from love comes obedience. You see, they're all connected one to another. You can't break the chain in the overcoming faith of a Christian. They are connected. A person that says he can love God without spurning God's commandments is already self-deceived, is blind. One cannot love God and live in disobedience to God's commands. John says God's commandments are not grievous. That is, they're not a burden. They're not some heavy uh, uh, burden upon our shoulder that we must bear. The Christian does not consider the commandments of God to be of that nature. He considers God's commandments to be no more grievous or burdensome than wings are to a bird. Yes, wings add weight to the body of a bird. But wings are not a burden to a bird. They are the means by which that bird is free, flies from his enemies and predators. And so the commandments of God, dear ones, as his people who have been redeemed from the curse of the law, because not because the law was sinful or evil or wicked, but because we couldn't keep the law. We've been redeemed from the curse of the law. The law is good and holy and righteous. It is a token of God's grace and goodness to us that he has given to us his commandments. And we are to love them and cherish them in our heart. There are three reasons why God's commandments are not grievous for the Christian. First of all, because Christ carries the greater part of the yoke through his love, his forgiveness, and his grace. In Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30, 
The Lord Jesus says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest in, unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, the Lord Jesus Christ, when he calls us to take upon ourselves his yoke, when we are united to Christ, when we believe and trust in Christ, we are yoked together with Christ. But we don't bear that yoke by ourselves. He shares that yoke and carries the greater burden on our behalf. So that when we bear Christ's yoke, it is under the umbrella of God's forgiveness. We can appeal to the Lord Jesus Christ when we fail, when we do not meet up to those standards which we know we should when we stumble, when we worry, when we fear, when through unbelief we are brought low. We appeal to Christ who carries the yoke for us. <clears throat> the second reason why God's commandments are not grievous for the Christian is because of the love that the Christian has for Christ. Love makes any burden light. When you love your wife, husbands, when husbands love wives and wives love husbands, when parents love children and children love parents, the burdens that we are called to bear in the family become very light indeed for the love that we have for that family member. The burden that we bear, the yoke we bear of Christ, becomes exceedingly light through our love for the Lord Jesus Christ, which is simply a response to all the love which he has shown to us. The third reason is because the Christian is born of God. And now, because he is born of God, God's commandments are not burdensome. They're not grievous because God has given him a desire and a will to obey the Lord. You see, if you have no desire follow Christ. If you have no zeal to be faithful to Christ, if you do not love a holy life, you ought to take serious inventory. You ought to examine your life very carefully. For one who has been begotten of God, begotten of the Spirit of God, has the very seed of God in his life and desires to do the will of God. He may fail in his performance, but he desires, he yearns to do the will of God. Such obedience, dear ones, and such love is the fruit of an overcoming faith. And the last question. What is the victory of an overcoming faith? Chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. We read these words. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? The victory, dear ones, for every child of God is this. His faith in Christ has overcome the world. It is not his faith all alone. It is not his faith in and of itself that has overcome the world. It is his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that has overcome the world. 
For his faith in Christ unites him to Christ and makes him a partaker of the victory which Christ has already won over all of his enemies. Calvin says, concerning the word world here, whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. The term world, he says, has here a wide meaning, for it includes whatever is adverse to the Spirit of God. Thus the corruption of our nature is a part of the world. All lust, all the crafts of Satan, in short, whatever leads us away from God, is the world. Think about that for a moment. Think about the pressures and the temptations you face day in and day out to compromise your faith, to be unfaithful at work, to not fulfill your duties in various ways to your family, These pressures and temptations are the world at work, seeking to conform us at times to, into the mold of others at the expense of the truth. For the temptation to have the favor and the applause of men at the expense of the favor of God. Or the love of money to the point where we neglect the kingdom of God or the love of comfort and pleasure at the expense of serving others. You see, the world can come to us with different faces. It can come to us even in the face of a loved one who calls us to compromise something we know to be true. It can come by way of false teaching, where we are tempted to believe contrary to the word of God. The world comes in many, many ways, but he who believes in that Jesus is the Son of God overcomes the world. This overcoming faith that belongs to every child of God, dear ones, is not a perfect faith, it's growing. It is weak and frail at times, but this overcoming faith doesn't give up. It perseveres. In Luke chapter 22, verses 31 and 32, there we find where Christ tells Peter that he would deny him. And Peter says, No, Lord, whatever happens, I wouldn't deny you at all. If need be, I would even die for you. And the Lord says to Peter that Satan has asked permission to sift you like wheat. He's asked permission to take you and put you through a very severe trial, which was what Peter passed through when he denied the Lord three times. God granted for his own glory and for Peter's good, God granted that request of Satan to sift Peter like wheat. But Jesus says, I have prayed for you that your faith not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brethren. The Lord Jesus says, though you will go through the most severe trial of your life, I have prayed that your faith would not perish, that it would not be destroyed, that it would persevere and be an overcoming faith. And when you have turned again, repented, go and use this particular incident in your life to, to strengthen and encourage your brethren. You see, this is the God whom we serve, who gives an overcoming faith and will not allow it to perish. 
Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God even now, interceding for you who belong to him, that day in and day out your faith not fail. And because of that, you have an overcoming faith. If you are a child of God. Here is the encouragement, dear ones, for the child of God. If Jesus Christ is the object of your faith, if the Spirit of God has given you faith by His almighty power, if the Spirit of God manifests that faith in your life by means of loving service for God and for the brethren, and by a love for holiness, then you have an overcoming faith in Christ that has already overcome the world and will continue to do so until it is perfected in glory. Please stand with me in prayer. Oh, Father, our faith does indeed fail us. We do fail thee. We see, Father, how we falter and stumble because of our sin, because of the temptations of the world. Lord God, we become frustrated. We see, Lord, how weak we are. But, Father, we are encouraged this day to hear that the faith which thou hast given to us, as weak as it may appear at times, is an overcoming faith, if it is a faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Christ of the Bible. O Father, we pray that thou would, would encourage thy people this day not to cast away their confidence and their hope in thee, not to fall into despair and discouragement, because the enemy has heated the furnace seven times and we feel like we cannot tolerate or take any more of the blast of the enemy. But, O oh God, cause us to see that it is for our good and for thy glory and thou wilt bring us forth. Thou wilt bring us forth with the hairs on our head unsinged. For our faith cannot perish and fail if it is in Christ. Use, Father, this for thy glory. Cause us, Father, to encourage one another with these truths. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T-6-L-3-T-5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, 
whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.